We'll turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, and going to 22. First Thessalonians chapter 5, starting verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And so that's actually not accurate, Peter. It's, we're going to look at only verse 19 this morning. But we will look at verse 19 in context with verses 20, 21, and 22, although I plan to have a couple more sermons on those verses, because... Verses 19 through 22 is one sentence in the Greek. And so we can understand, get an idea of what Paul means by not quenching the spirit by looking at verses 20 through 22. But I agree with John Calvin, who says uh, that verse 19, though we have an example of it in verse 20, what, uh, an example of quenching the spirit, but verse 19 itself is a general theme, a general teaching that we see elsewhere in Scripture. So that's kind of how we're going to treat it this morning that verse 19 is stands on its own, and then starting at verse 20, we have a more specific uh, example of quenching the spirit, of which probably the Thessalonians were guilty by despising prophecy. But last week we looked at verses 16 through 18, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in everything. And so this week we find Paul continuing his teaching regarding how to live the Christian life. The, the, the heading of my Bible, uh, starting in verse 12, says Christian conduct, how we as believers are to live our lives. So we are to rejoice, we are to pray without ceasing, we are to give thanks in everything. And so Paul comes to verse 19, and, it, and he's, he's continuing this, this theme of how to live the Christian life. So now he's moving more into focusing on the work of, spirit, of the Spirit in the Christian life. Do not quench the spirit, he says. In the Greek, it is more literally, stop quenching the spirit. So it seems that the Thessalonians, in Paul's view, were actively quenching the spirit. So Paul is telling them to cease quenching the spirit. Paul is not talking about quenching the person of the spirit. That wouldn't make sense because the spirit is one of the members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's not saying quench out the spirit that he ceases to exist or you stifle him as a person. But what he means, as we can see from verse 20, is that this is the spirit's work that you are quenching, that you are, that you are suffocating, as it were. You are just suppressing the work of the spirit. And we see, as I mentioned in verse 20, one of those ways is prophecy. They were despising prophecy or prophetic utterances, which is a work of the spirit. The work of the Spirit, as we can see, is in 1 Corinthians 12, chapter 12 and chapter 14, uh, we can see the work of the Spirit delineated there as well. So, in examining this verse, verse 19, we will ask three questions, and hopefully by God's grace answer them. Number one, what is this work of the Spirit that can be quenched? Number two, what does it mean to quench his work, or how does one quench his work? That way we can keep a, you know, keep a guard against it, that we are not quenching the work of the Spirit. And number three, how can we do the opposite of quenching his work and in fact fuel his work? Can we even do that? So what is the work of the Spirit that can be quenched, number one? Number two, what does it mean to quench his work? And number three, how can we do the opposite and fuel or spur, in, in, in one sense, his work? So taking the first question. What is this work of the Spirit that can be quenched? As I mentioned, we can answer this by speaking to the gifts of the Spirit as we see described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14. The gifts of the Spirit include wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. So we could talk about the gifts of the Spirit. That's his work that he's doing in the church. And if you look at the context of 
chapter 12 and 14, 1 Corinthians, we see that these are gifts to the church for the edification, for the building up of the body. We can also see that in this next verse, verse 20, that the Thessalonians were quenching the Spirit by despising prophecy. So we see there Paul's example is of a gift of the Spirit that they were quenching, that they were suppressing. We will say more about these gifts next time, especially prophecy, when we look at tw- ch- uh, sorry, verse 20. But for now, let's sum it up as the Spirit's supernatural work through the gifts. So we see here, at the very least, the Thessalonians were suppressing or quenching the Spirit's supernatural work through the gift of prophecy. We could also talk about the fruit of the Spirit as described in Galatians 5, through 23. Those include love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we could say that they were quenching the work of the Spirit in that he was producing these things in the people. That in some way they were quenching the work of the Spirit in producing his fruit. But I don't think that's the case here because you see that the Thessalonians could not be charged with despising these things. We see their love for one another in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. We see their faith, the strength of their faith, and their love in chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy's report. We see their patience under suffering for the gospel, and that's chapter 2, verse 14. We see their joy uh, in the Holy Spirit, and that is in uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. So it doesn't appear that the Thessalonians were suppressing or quenching or, or trying to constrain the fruit of the Spirit but more so his supernatural work through the gifts. But I think a way that that will help us get a handle on what Paul means by the work of the Spirit here is to follow his analogy of the flame or the fire. That word quench there has that implication, quenching a fire, snuffing it out. So if we are going to take that view of, of, of the work of the Spirit as this flame, that needs, to be, that, that needs to be fed and fueled instead of suppressed or snuffed out. Let's see what, what Scripture has to say regarding the Spirit as it relates to fire. First, we have an example in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, in the ministry of John the Baptist. John says, I baptize you with the water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit and fire. And then we see this fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, verse 3. They were all gathered together on the day of Pentecost in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. In verse 3, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So the appearance of the Holy Spirit, the filling of them by the Holy Spirit, was attended with tongues of fire. Another way we can see this is to look at the word fervent as it's translated in some translations. Fervent in spirit. That word translated into the English from the Greek literally means hot or boiling. So when it says fervent in spirit, you see that phrase in Romans 12 and in Acts 18. So it means fervent in the spirit. They were hot or boiling in the spirit. They were, they're, 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 the flame was, was, was kindled and it was um, uh, uh, like bellows were applied to it and it was inflamed. It was, it, it was encouraged in them. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy, as I read at the beginning of the service, for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Then he goes on to say in verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. So you see here that Paul is referring to the, the gift of the Spirit, that with the Spirit's work in Timothy as something like a flame. And you see this borne out in, in verse 7 when he says it's not a timidity, it's not this quiet small. It's just this roaring fire of power and love and self-control or self-discipline. So to sum it up, 
I think what we'd see, that as we see the, 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 the Holy Spirit, as it's talked about in a sense of a fire or a flame, to sum it up is a supernatural empowerment by the Spirit. A supernatural empowerment by the Spirit. John Gill, that, that uh, old uh, Baptist uh, pastor and theologian and Bible commentator, he says that the, these, these, these flames of the Spirit, this, this, this supernatural empower of the Spirit, are what he calls the graces of the Spirit. The graces of the Spirit. And he'd say that would include faith, love, and zeal, and also spiritual knowledge. Faith would be a seeing of the Son, that, as we talked about in Sunday school, that faith and repentance is a gift of God, that you are given a view of Jesus Christ as seeing of the Son, and then this love is, in, is, is, is engendered in you, that you have this love for what you see. You see the Son and you love him. And then this zeal, John Gill refers to it as a boiling up of love. A boiling up of love. So we, this makes sense because we by our own nature, by our heart of stone, will not see Jesus and we will not love him. In fact, we turn away and we worship and serve the created, as Romans 1 says. We worship and serve ourselves. We worship and serve this world that we see. And it's only by God's giving us a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, regenerating us, giving us eyes to see Jesus Christ so that out of this vision and out of this new heart, we love him. We love him. And this, of course, is the work of the Spirit in regeneration. We also see this work of the Spirit in spiritual knowledge, giving us those eyes to see, illuminating the glories of God. So we need that supernatural empowerment, not only to become believers, but to walk in obedience as believers. We need to see the glories of God in the face of Christ be spurred on in our love and our zeal by the Spirit to walk in obedience. So, to put it all together, what we just talked about, the, the, the flame of the Spirit, this zeal that we can quench out is the Spirit's supernatural empowering gifts. The Spirit's supernatural empowering gifts. You see, if we're not careful, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, if we're not careful, we'll understand ourselves as separate so that, that we gain, as I mentioned in Sunday school, that we gain a little bit of help from God and then we are expected to walk off on our own rather than understanding that we must live as Christians, not only before we were Christians, to be saved, but as Christians, once we're saved, to walk in the Spirit's power. In fact, if you study the ministry of Jesus, he ministered in the power of the Spirit. Someone charged him with uh, working the works of Beelzebub by casting out demons, and he says, if I cast out demons by the, the Spirit of God, it's by the Spirit of God, which is the finger of God, elsewhere mentioned, I'm casting out demons by the Spirit of God. So Jesus ministered in the power of the Spirit, and then we as Christians sometimes make the mistake of thinking that, that we are, are supposed to kind of get salvation, and then t I'll take it from there, but we are to live in continual dependence on the Spirit's supernatural, empowering gifts. But we will say more on this when we come to the question of how to fan it into flame, which is question number three. But first... Second question, what does it mean to quench the work of the Spirit? Paul seems to say that you are quenching the Spirit, Thessalonians. You need to quit it. Well, quench means to extinguish, to pour water on, to snuff out like a light or a lamp. We can see, as I mentioned, one way that they're doing this by despising prophecy. Partly because we see similar, or because we see similar teaching in Paul and other places, I think that Quenching, do not quench the spirit is a general admonition in scripture and not just applying to despising prophecy. One of the places we see it in Paul is in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 where Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I think this is also a general admonition of scripture because we see this danger warned against and its opposite, fanning into flame the spirit, encouraged in many places throughout scripture. So, how or what does it mean to quench the spirit of God. I like how one commentator, John Trapp, put it. He says there's two ways that you can quench the Spirit. One, by withdrawing its fuel, or his fuel. Two, by throwing water on the work of the Spirit. 
So that makes sense if you think about it in the sense of a fire. Removing the fuel, some of you who may have seen the, the wildfires, that's what they do. They jump out ahead of the fire and they clear the land so that when the fire comes to it, there's no fuel for it to burn. That's a lot of work. They try to surround the fire and clear land, cutting down trees, clearing brush. So when the fire gets there, there's no fuel for it to continue marching forward. And they do the second thing, which is you see helicopters come in and dump water on it. So this is the way to quench the fire of the Spirit, is to withdraw fuel from him or cast water on his work. So what does that mean? What does it mean to withdraw the fuel? What is this fuel? Well, put simply, the fuel that the Spirit uses to, 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 to empower us, to, to work in us, are the ordinances, the duties, and in the words of Thomas Brooks, as we talked about last Wednesday, the cordials and comforts that he gives us. In other words, the means of grace. What are the means of grace? Bible reading, prayer, church, and included in church, I would say preaching, communion, accountability, encouragement, exhortation, and correction. In other words, Christian fellowship. And I think we would see that also in verse 20 when they despise prophecies I think in, the, in, in this New Testament context, that includes preaching. That preaching, truly, biblically done, which we'll talk about in the next sermon, is prophecy. And so they were despising preaching, in a sense. They were despising the prophecy. So the, the, these, the fuel of the Holy Spirit is he works through these things to, to spur you on, to encourage you in faith. The means of grace is just means the, 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 the avenues or the channels of grace, the, the means by which God communicates grace to you. He does it through the word, through prayer, and through the church and its ordinances. We see this in scripture. Jesus says in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So sanctify them. Work by, and the, and the sanctification happens by the Holy Spirit to, 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 to make, to purify his people, to set them apart for himself. That happens by the work of the Spirit. And notice, it's done in the Word. Your Word is truth. So if the Spirit is going to work powerfully, supernaturally empowering you, he will do it through the Word of God. Sometimes, though, I think we as Christians, or some who may not be Christians, but they call themselves Christians, we think that the application of the Bible is somehow we just hold it to our head or we hold it to our heart or we read maybe one verse on our Instagram or our Facebook feed, and we're like, there you go, I'm being sanctified in the truth. But that's not how God works. The Spirit shows you the Son of God, shows you the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, shows you the promises of God and their fulfillment and the character of God, his faithfulness to do what he has promised. And you have to see all of that. You have to have a, a steady diet of all of that so that that, that that flame within you, that is the spirit, is, is, in, is inflamed more. I mentioned it, I've put it this way before. You are an engine, as a Christian, that runs on the word of God, communicating to you the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, the character of God, the beauty of Jesus Christ, the beauties of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must have a steady diet of that. Otherwise, you are quenching the spirit of God. Elsewhere, it says, you have not because you ask not. It says that in James. So prayer, prayer. You may not have or you do not have the Spirit's supernaturally empowering gifts for you to walk in obedience because you are not praying for them. You're not spending your time in prayer. As we talked about before, prayer is a, when we talked about verse 17, pray without ceasing, prayer is a constant awareness of your absolute dependence on God. Prayer is not to be resorted to at the last moment. It's meant to be the first thing. I, apart from the grace of God, cannot obey these things. You're meant to read the scriptures and say, who can obey this? By God's grace, through his spirit, I can. But it means I rely on him. I spend time in prayer. I'm on my knees in humility and asking for him to fan that flame for the spirit to to spur me in holiness. 
as I mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14, the gifts of the Spirit mentioned there, prophecy, tongues, healing, wisdom, these things, are gifts to the church. They're gifts to the church. They're not gifts for you in your prayer closet. They're gifts to the church. You are meant to employ these gifts by the Spirit for the church, to the building up of the church. And so if you say, I'm not going to go to church, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be interested in the preaching, or I'm, gonna be, I'm not going to be interested in the brotherhood and all these things, then you're missing out on God's gift to the church that is in the Spirit's supernatural empowerment. The church is meant to be a place to encourage you to walk in holiness. Just as an ex other example, if you're fighting sin, you need to fight with brothers and sisters. Because if you are not, you are in essence taking on the vast army of demons single-handedly. Will they surround you? In a moment. Do you have a brother behind you, watching your back? If you don't, you will fall so easily. So we are meant to walk in lockstep with our brothers and sisters in Christ, coming to church to, to confess our sins to them, to hear them confess their sins, to encourage them, to be encouraged by them, to be challenged by them, to be rebuked, be, be corrected, all these things for the, the, the spirit to be fanned into flame and to spur us on in obedience. So all these things are the fuel, the ordinances, the duties. This is something that is, is difficult sometimes for us to grasp as Protestants because we say, that is legalism, that is Roman Catholicism. But we are throwing out such a vital, glorious gift that God has given us. Glorious gift. He has said, here, here are my commands. Here is what I expect of you as a Christian. To be in the word. To be in prayer. To be in church. To disciple your family. To do family worship. To do discipleship of your home. Do all these things. So that through them, you are built up and edified. I have ordained, God says, that my church be built up in these. Let me give you an example. If these are easily dispensed with, these ordinances, these duties, these things, these means of grace that God has given to us, if these are easily dispensed with, oh, you know, I don't need them, I'm good. One of those that would be dispensed with is the preaching of the gospel. How else will people be saved? How else would you have been saved except by the preaching of the gospel? So you look at the preaching of the gospel, God hitting you with a lightning bolt, you understanding the truth, you falling on your face, repenting and believing, you say, that happened through the preaching of God's word, the gospel. Now I, need to, I can move on without it. Ooh. God has ordained that it would be the thing that not only saves you through the preaching of the gospel, through, through the ministry of the word, not only preaching, but through Bible studies and sitting in the, in the, in the word, that would not be only the thing that's, that, that makes you, that, re, that by his spirit he regenerates you and makes you his, but also the thing that sustains you. It's like coming to an oasis in the desert. You're dying of thirst and you come to the oasis and you drink a drink of water. You say, I'm good from now on, and you wander off into the desert. You're meant to live there at the oasis. You're meant to have that oasis in you, that spring of well rushing up, a continual feed of the water of the word. You do not move on from it. So that's the fuel that you withdraw, that you take back. Secondly, the second way that we quench the spirit is by throwing water on it. What is this water? Well, very simply, Sin. Sin. Or as Thomas Brooks calls it, as we talked about last week, enormities, severe sins. We see this in David's penitential psalm, his psalm of repentance. He says in Psalm 51, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Then dropping down to verse 11 and 12. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. So this separation from God. 
This, this distance between him and God, this, this loss in verse 12 of the joy of his salvation comes from his sin. His sin quenches the work of the Spirit. And it makes sense because the Spirit is a holy spirit. And so if you are filling yourself up with defilement, you are in, ingesting defilement in your eyes, in your thoughts, in your hobbies, in the way you spend your time, the Holy Spirit will have no part of that. So we throw water, we quench the power of the Spirit when we embrace sin. And I don't mean that you have to be perfect. Don't hear me. Don't mishear me. I mean the sense of where you have embraced sin, where you've turned aside to sin and said, I'm going to, I'm going to, 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 to grab a hold of this, and this is going to be kind of what I do. As 1 John points out, it's practicing lawlessness. It's not falling into sin. It's practicing it. It's walking in it. Sin quenches the spirit. Number two, what Thomas Poole calls earthly encumbrances. Earthly encumbrances. Hebrews 12, the sin which so, the, every weight and the sin which so easily besets us. So it's not only uh, sin that besets, but this every encumbrance or every weight. So it's the, the environment, the, 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 the culture that you've built around yourself, whether it's in your family or whether it's work, including the people that you spend time with. To put it in, the, in biblical terms, James 4, it's friendship with the world. And so if you spend your time surrounded by unbelievers who are glorifying themselves and, glor- and, and worshiping idols, then your, your, your influences will be toward yourself and toward idols. To put it another way, if you spend hours watching a, a Netflix series or, or watching TV or on the internet browsing, and, and it's, it's things that are that, that may not be inherently sinful, but they, 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 they pull you more toward a, a, a secular worldview or, or kind of a, a godless worldview. And it may not be overtly sinful, like sexual or, or, or language and all these things. It may just be something that's secularized and, and, it's, and it's a world that God does not exist. And you spend hours in that, and then you come to the scriptures and you read one chapter. Or you read one verse on your feed on your phone. How can you expect but to be influenced toward the world rather than toward Scripture? You think, well, these, these, are, these things are just mindless entertainment. Yeah, that's the problem. They're mindless. And you have to be very careful because the way you spend your time, you're being discipled by, your, by the people you hang out with, by your hobbies, be very careful because you're easily being discipled away from God. So it's not necessarily just the time spent, but, but if you have hours and hours of, of thinking about uh, worldly things and focusing on money and, and success and material possessions and, and all these things, then don't be surprised when you come to Scripture, your mind is scattered and, and you, 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 nothing's really grabbing a hold because the Spirit sees that you are surrounding yourself with worldly things. And so you quench the spirit. Imagine trying to study the Bible and pray in the middle of a a raucous, debauched, wicked party. How are you going to do that? It'd be impossible. You'd have to put on noise-canceling things and and goggles, and you, you just... It would, be so imp- it would be so difficult, if not impossible. And that is not where the Holy Spirit wants to be, is in that party. But in a holy vessel set apart for God's glory. Number three, the third thing of water. First is sin, second it's earthly encumbrances or worldly company. Number three, it's despising his work. We see that here in verse 20 in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, despising his work. Verse 20, do not despise prophetic utterances or prophecy. So that's devaluing his work. This is, I think, so dangerous in our modern scientific era. When scientists, supposed scientists, secularists, are so quick to say, your faith, 
Your religion is just hallucinations. It's just delusion. It's just wishful thinking. How often do we hear that? All the time. And be careful again of the media watch because that also has that message very often. They want to teach your kids that. This is just self-delusion. It's self-delusion. It's just, it's just wishful thinking. We want, and here's the key, here's the phrase you hear a lot, evidence-based. Heard that? This is evidence-based medicine. When I hear that, I'm like, what was medicine before that? Right? It's, not, it's like we just came out of the Stone Age or something. Like, now we're going to do evidence-based medicine. We've been doing that since I've been born and before. But they're using that evidence-based to be like, we are trusting in these studies and what we can see with our hands and what we can test in a laboratory. Really, are you? How many things are you trusting in that you can't test in a laboratory? How many times are you, are you trusting in the word of some quantum physicist who's saying things that you can't even begin to comprehend, who's just saying, trust me, I have three PhDs? What is that? but faith. And so they're tricking you. And so we don't want to bring that into the church and be like, we're going to do evidence-based Christian uh, obedience. Meaning, if we can't quantify it, if, we, if we, it can't be tested in a laboratory, then we will not do it. Okay, let's bring somebody before this testing in a laboratory, this tribunal, and test the doctrine of regeneration, of resurrection, of the supernatural power of the Spirit. Of the Spirit to take a blind, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, spiritual hater of God and transform them into a lover of Jesus Christ. Let's quantify that scientifically. You can't. You can't. And yet sometimes we bring that into the church and we have to be, every, everything has to be quantified and we have to put on our white coats and no, sometimes it's just the work of the Spirit, and we say, glory, hallelujah, look what he has done. We're not saying that there's anything in that water. Somebody come test that water and see if there's anything in there that's going to change Austin. No, that water is saying what God has done. Isn't that right, Austin? Look what God has done. We're not trusting anything here. We're just saying this is a mystery. And Austin would be the first to say, why would God save me? What in, what in me led to God saying, you know what? He's worthy of saying, saving nothing. It's all in God. And can we quantify the goodness and glory of God? Oh, not even close. And so be careful that as we contemplate the work of the Spirit, we don't despise it. We don't devalue it. We say, this is a wonderful mystery that God does these things, that he raises men from the dead. That he gives us these gifts to the church to build us up. We walk, sorry, we, de we devalue his work, we despise his work when we walk in the flesh, not in the spirit. Romans chapter 8. When we're led not by the spirit, but by the flesh. Oh, be careful that you do not Take the, the supernatural, otherworldly power of God in the spirit, in the text, in the scriptures, and then say, I'm going to build a structure. I'm going to build a, a tradition. I'm going to build a, 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 a Christianity with all these rules and all these things, and I'm going to walk in the flesh rather than by the spirit. I'm going to trust to myself and my rules rather than the spirit. Oh, be careful of that. You're scoffing at the spirit, supernatural work of the Spirit. You're devaluing His work. I think we see these things, this withdrawing of the fuel and the casting, throwing water on the work of the Spirit here in our text. You see it there in verses 20 through 22. We see neglecting our duties. We see scoffing at his work, as we talked about in verse 20, and we see sin. In verse 20, we see despising his work, neglecting the preaching in the church, which is prophecy. We see verse 21, 
examining the fuel, I think. You could say it's examining the fuel and keeping your tinder dry, keeping your fuel dry, the wood dry. And then verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. It's staying away from the water that quenches the, the power of the Spirit, this, this sin, this evil. So you, 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 you attend on the ordinances, you attend on prophecy, you attend on preaching, you, you take use of the means of grace. And at the same time, you're examining everything carefully, judging this prophecy, as we'll talk about next time, and holding fast that which is good, that which is fueling, that which is dry and, and, and good for fueling the fire, and abstaining, getting rid of every form of evil. So abstaining and, and fleeing from sin. So that's how we quench the spirit and how we can guard against it. Finally, how can we fuel the work of the spirit rather than quench it? We've already seen in the passage I read to open the service, 2 Timothy 1.6. We've already seen Paul say to Timothy, I remind you to kindle afresh. In the ESV, it says, to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. What is this gift of God that is in him? It's the Spirit. We see in verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity. This is the Holy Spirit. So Paul tells Timothy to fan into flame this, this Spirit within him, the gift of the Spirit within him. So how do we do that? I think two passages will help us position our thinking in this. The first is Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6. 12 and 13. God is describing the way to set up the sacrificial system. And he says these interesting things here in Leviticus 6, 12 and 13. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall lay out the burnt offering on it and offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. So keep that in mind, this, this continually burning fire on the altar of God. And then go to Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. There's the worldly encumbrances. Be transformed, be separate from them, by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So with our Leviticus passage, we see that the fire on the, on the altar, the fire of sacrifice, is to be continually burning. That the priests are to make sure that this fire is always fueled, always burning. Then here in Romans 12, we have the picture of a living sacrifice. So this fire that is continually burning, and then here in Romans 12, we have this sacrifice that is continually living. Or a sacrifice that is continually burning as the shrub or the bush that Moses was at that was burning and yet never consumed. Let me encourage you to have that as a picture of your life before God, as a continually burning sacrifice that in which the fire never goes out. Does, that, does the fire never go out because you are zealous, because you are careful to keep loading it with logs no, the fire goes, never goes out. We see here in Romans 12, 1, because of the mercies of God. Isn't that comforting? If you are truly a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will never lose your flame because it is rooted in the mercies of God. It is not in your works. Be a living sacrifice. Work hard. Fan the flame. If you ever miss a day, if you ever sleep in and you forget to throw a log on the fire, you're lost. No. Mercies of God. You will have a flame. 
you will have a little pilot light burning always. But at the same time, can we as Christians feed that little pilot light? Yes. I say that partly because Paul is clear and he says that you can quench it. Not that you lose your salvation, but you can kind of suppress it. You can kind of, where the fire dwindles down to almost nothing. So I think conversely, and I see, and we see in Timothy as well, he says, fan into flame what God has given you. Fan into flame this Holy Spirit. There's a sense in which you can feed the flame and let it roar for the glory of God. So don't mistake me and hear me say that we must keep our salvation. We must feed the flame or it will die and we will be lost forever. No, 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 no. Feed the flame. Take means, take, the, take a hold of the means of grace, what God has given to you in Jesus Christ, and use that as God meant for it to be used for the flame to be fanned higher and higher. In other words, can we be zealous for the will of God, as Romans 12.2 says, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Can we be zealous in proving the will of God? What does that mean? Showing. Showing the goodness of God's will, the, the perfection of God's will, the acceptableness of God's will. To use a phrase from last week, the suitableness of God's will. Can we do that? Can we be zealous in that? Yes. Yes. How? By doing the opposite of what quenches the Spirit. You remember what quenches the Spirit? Withdrawing from the means of grace. Withdrawing from what God has given us in Jesus Christ to fuel the flame of the Spirit. So, how do we fan the flame? Be steady in the means of grace. Be faithful in the means of grace. Not because you are supposed to, but because you understand that these are God-given means to fuel the fire of the Spirit. To fuel the fire of the Spirit. Let me give you an example. We saw last week in verse 18 that Paul says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How do we encourage ourselves help ourselves give thanks in everything. How do we do that? Do you think it would help if we hung around a pessimistic, grumbling, critical person who's always saying how bad things are, how terrible things are? Do you think that would help us? Do you think it would help if we surrounded ourselves with, in, our, in our, what we watch or in our, in our free time, that we surround ourselves with kind of a selfish, I'm the God of the universe, I want to be happy, I'm doing this so I feel good, I'm, doing, I'm eating that so I feel everything's about me feeling good and feeling fulfilled. Do you think that's going to encourage us to be thankful? Because we'll always have that gap between what I feel I need or what I expect and what actually comes to me. So my job is not quite there. My, my hobbies, I don't have the, 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 the right toy that I need for this and my spouse and, and, and this. And it will always kind of be, have that gap and so that thankfulness will not be encouraged. But conversely, what do you think will encourage thankfulness? Being around thankful people. Being around people who remind you of all the things in this life that you have to be thankful for. Sitting under preaching that does the same. In Bible study that does the same. You see, we always have that selfish impulse to say, I need, I require, I expect. And so we continually as Christians need to come under the rule of the word of God and the encouragement of our brothers and sisters in Christ to say, what do you have that you have not received, brother? Well, if only I had this. God has given you this. God has given you a family. God has given you wonderful kids. He's given you a spouse. He's given you a car. He's given you a house. He's given you all these things. And, 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 and listen to what your brothers and sisters are saying in Christ about what they're thankful for. You're, you're, you're prone to grumble about what you don't have. And then you hear somebody else praise God. You say, oh, I, I, 
I wish I, I, need a, I need a chicken coop. I'll be happy if I have a chicken coop. And then you hear, you hear your brother and sister in Christ say, praise God, we have a chicken. I need a coop for my 40 chickens. And they're like, praise God, we have a chicken. You say, you know what? That's the, that's the right thing. I'm not going after you chicken owners. That's just what occurred to me. But you see the difference. They're saying, look at our chicken. God has given us this. We can get eggs. We can slaughter and have meat. This is great. And you're saying, if only we can have that next step. And so what does that do? But it encourages you to give thanks. What is the Spirit doing? Do you see that? The Spirit is saying, let me help you give thanks in everything by giving you the church. By giving you the word of God preached. The the, the Bible studies that you sit in to be reminded continually of the glories of God. that That he has gifted you these things. And if you need the biggest one of all, be reminded again and again and again and again and again and again by your brothers and sisters in Christ of chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. God has not destined you, brother, for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's true, Josh, but chicken coop? Right? It puts into perspective the eternal glories of God in every way. So you do, do you see how that fans into flame the gift of God in the spirit by being steady in the means of grace? God is pouring a river of grace through the church, through his people. Get in front of it and let it just wash over you. Not because you're supposed to, because you are fueling the fire of the spirit. Not despising preaching, not despising prophecy, but glorying and these means that God has given us to fan the flame. Number two, carefully examine, we see this here in verses 21 and 22, carefully examine all and flee from every appearance of evil. In other words, to use our flame and water analogy, look for any and all dampness, any and all dampness. Some of you may be able to relate. I, we're, we're finishing, trying to finish our basement, and I've been watching videos online about how to mitigate dampness in the basement. In Texas, they don't have basements. So I'm like, it's, it's just all this battle. Okay, put a vapor barrier, put this. Okay, you want to make sure that there's no organic stuff and all that. And I'm like, oh, why do people have basements? This is too much. I gotta, if I get, am I hearing this correctly? I've got to put 19 dehumidifiers in my basement. Is that right? I, I'm not used to it. But having that same kind of focus, zeal, that maybe some people have about their basements, I want to make sure there's no dampness because I don't want any mold, I don't want that musty smell, I'm going to fight it, I'm going to do everything I can. What if we had that about the dampness, anything that could contribute to quenching the spirit? We examine all things carefully. That's what Paul says in verse 21, examine everything, carefully examine. This doesn't mean that we become legalistic and we're always looking for, for specks in people's eyes, but we're looking at our life and saying, not that I'm, I'm so scared and, 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 and legalistic and, and all in angsty, but I'm doing out of an f- abundance of faith and joy in the Holy Spirit, desiring the roaring fire of the Spirit within me. And so I look at how I, what I watch. I look at what I listen to, podcast, music. I look at who I hang out with. I look, at the, I look at the jokes I laugh at at church. I mean, yeah, church and at, and at work and at school. I look at, I look at what, what my teacher is saying. I look, I look at everything. I look at what the, the news says. I, look, I examine everything carefully, and I do what Paul says. I hold fast to the goodness, and I flee. I fight sin, and I flee temptation. Why? Because dampness will quench the goodness. I want that fire. Give me that fire. So I'm not going to play with damp wood. Ah, it'll work. Throw it in there. No. I want it to be dry. I want it to just boom, almost blow up. I want the fire of God in my life. Look for any and all dampness. Fight sin and flee temptation. Number three, pray for boldness. This is something that we see in Acts chapter 4. We don't want to leave off prayer. This is what God gives us in response to prayer. We see this over and over in, in Acts especially. But let me, read, let me show you Acts 4. Acts 4. 
And now, Lord, they pray, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Pray for the power of the Spirit to come out of your mouth in bold speech. He testifies, he extends his hand with these signs and wonders. You say, well, he doesn't do that. Oh, he does. We still see people raised from the dead, don't we? Spiritually raised from the dead. We see lives changed. God is testifying to his, the truth of the gospel and of himself by raising people from the dead. So stand and deliver, brothers. Open up your mouth and let the fire of God fly out. Boldness. Pray for it. Pray for it. And then finally, number four how we can be zealous in fanning the flame within us. Act boldly in the spirit, rooted in the gospel. This is interesting. If you go back to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll close with this. So if you want to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is the passage I read at the beginning of the service. Look at what Paul connects to Timothy fanning the flame within him, kindling afresh the gift of God which is in him. For 2 Timothy chapter 1, <clears throat> starting in verse 6. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Do you see what Paul is saying? Fan into flame. Pray for boldness. Stand boldly in the spirit that God has given you, the gift of God which is in you. Because the spirit that is in you is one of power and love and discipline. Therefore, therefore, Timothy, sit at home until you feel powerful, loving, and self-disciplined. No, you notice he doesn't say that. Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed. Join with me in suffering. Timothy, this is true. This is the spirit that God has already given you. Therefore, go. Don't be ashamed, Timothy. Join with me in suffering. And Timothy, remember this is all rooted in, in the gospel. Suffer, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Timothy, let me remind you of the gospel who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, Timothy, remember, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in all, in Jesus Christ, from all eternity. But it has now been revealed in our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life to him. So Timothy, you know the spirit is already given to you you know because you have, you have seen the gospel, you have believed it. This is true. He saved us. He's called us. Jesus has been revealed. You know it to be true. Run in it. Go, brother. This is why I suffer, Paul says in verse 12. Because I know, I know him whom I have believed in, Jesus. And I know the end. He will guard which I have entrusted to him until that day. Timothy, follow me and run and fan the flame because the gospel is true. You have been saved in it and what you have guarded to him is entrusted and he will guard it until that day. But Paul goes on, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So you have entrusted to, to Verse 12, you have entrusted to him your, your, your life, 
your eternal destiny. You've entrusted your salvation to Jesus Christ. Verse 14, the spirit and the truths of the gospel, verse 13, sound words have been entrusted to you. So retain them, guard them. Then drop down to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, notice another word, that same word, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying? Timothy, act boldly in the Spirit, rooted in the assurance and, 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 and rock-solid foundation that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Run out there and retain those sound words. Guard them. Entrust them to faithful men. Suffer hardship as a soldier, unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Put it another way. Timothy, see him you, in whom you have believed. See his goodness, his grace in the gospel. See his spirit as the flame on the altar of your life and run in it. Run. Look what Paul says. He continues on. Verse 4. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Why do you think Paul is telling Timothy that? You think Timothy's like, who's Jesus Christ? I forgot. No. Paul is saying, you're suffering your soldiering is, is, is rooted is, is from you standing in Jesus Christ, in the gospel, in who he is. He's risen from the dead. He's a descendant of David. You've heard the gospel. You've believed in it. So you can do like I do, verse 9, for which I suffer hardship, the gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Now Paul says, can I sum it up in a poem, Timothy? It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And beautifully, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Timothy Look at your Savior, Jesus Christ. God has given us the means to look at our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his word. It's preached in his church. He's on the lips of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you are surrounding yourself with verse 8, you are surrounding yourself with remember Jesus Christ, remember Jesus Christ, remember Jesus Christ, and you are a Christian, guess what? That flame will roar. That's what I desire for you, what Paul desires for Timothy, what Paul desires for you, and God's will for you in Jesus Christ as a follower of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we would fan the flame. So we, by your word, remember Jesus Christ. We remember the gospel. We remember our bloody, broken, deceased, corrupt, decaying state. We remember your grace in resurrecting us. 
we see, we remember your spirit given to us. Forgive us, Father, where we've quenched the spirit. Where we have wandered. Where we have wondered why our spiritual life is stale. Why we seem to be caught on a treadmill, not moving anywhere. Help us to see, Father, that you have ordained the means of grace to feed us, to feed the fire, to be zealous, be plugged in, be earnest. Forgive us, Father, where we have trusted in fleshly things, where we have despised the work of the Spirit, We have not waited for your spirit, but have run on in the flesh. For we have quenched the spirit by casting water on it through sin, through worldly entanglements. Help us see clearly that we stand in grace. That we are not condemned, but if we, are, if we have faith in Christ, we stand accepted in him. And so we have encouragement lift our eyes to see and savor the, the Son, to remember Jesus Christ. So help us put away, Father, our quenching. Help us put on and make it a habit of fanning into flame your gift in us. For your honor and glory. For the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.